Today we're in 1 Chronicles. Quick show of hands. Who's, who, who's doing the reading plan? Come on. Yeah. Oh, great. Fantastic. Keep your hands up if you've enjoyed 1 Chronicles. <laughs> Dennis and Emma and Heidi. Uh, right. Oh, Phil. Fantastic. Okay, great. A few of you. What do you mean, not the first few chapters? <laughs> Guys, guess what? Today we're hanging out in chapters 1 to 9. Come on, yes. We are hanging out in 1 Chronicles 1 to 9. And we're going to hang out there because I knew, I knew that you would not enjoy it. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in this row here, and I'm just going to pass my Bible along, and if you could read a line each, we're going to... No, no. I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm not going to make you read all those names, I promise. Um, you may want to open your Bible to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Um, we don't have loads of time, so I'm, I'm not going to read it all. Um, praise the Lord, because I would struggle with all the names. And I get it, right? What, the, what on earth is going on? Like, what are all these names about? Why are you making us read this, Matt? Um, Stories, stories. We um, we love stories, right? Whether you realise it or not, as a human race, we love stories. We tell stories all the time. You might not even realise it, but you do. You meet someone and you start asking them, "Hey, who, who? What do you do? Who are you?" And suddenly they start telling you the story of their life, who they are, what they want you to know about them. You do it as well. You tell people stories about your life. You tell people stories about the things that you've been up to. Sometimes we just tell them because we want to make people laugh. Sometimes we tell them stories because we want them to understand something of what we're feeling or what we're thinking or what we've been through or we tell them a story because we want them to understand that we understand what they are going through stories are important they are at the core of what it is to be human we are a storytelling species that is what we do we love to tell stories um uh yeah i I, i'm a little geeky who likes history I particularly am interested in the history of Counterslip Baptist Church, and I have read the history book several times. There is a Counterslip Baptist Church history book. Yesterday, while we were wandering around Bath, we found an old map shop, and I bought a map. I won't tell you how much it was. It cost me a little bit of money, but we bought a map from the 1800s of Bristol, because I love old maps of Bristol. Bristol Museum, if you go upstairs in the little front bit around the uh, kind of balcony there, you can see all these maps of Bristol in date order. I love it. And we bought this map, and... um, I got it home, I started looking at it, and I was like, the guys told us the wrong date. Because I started looking, and I was like, counterslip's still on this road here. But I know that by 1885, which was the date this map was supposed to be, the church had moved, and it was now on Victoria Street. And it wasn't marked on there, but it was still marked with the school next to it on counterslip, the road in town. So I was like, the latest this map can be is 18." Uh, what was it, 1877? Because we moved in 1878 to Victoria. I love a bit of history. I love a story. Um, and um, yeah, I just geek out on that. There's no point in me telling you that other than the fact that I love that kind of thing. We love stories, right? Like I get sucked in and I'm like, I want to know more. Tell me more about that. Like, and, and stories draw us and they shape us and, and, and they inspire us. Stories. We love stories. Um, have you ever told a story to someone and didn't get the response you were hoping for. 
Many, many times. This has happened to me. Okay. You tell a story and they look at you as if like, what? And they don't laugh like they're supposed to. That's the point where you're supposed to laugh in the story and nobody laughs. And, and, and you know, quite often the reason that happens or the reason that what's supposed to happen doesn't happen is because the person you're telling the story to doesn't understand the context, right? Context is key with stories. If, if the story is going to make sense, you need to understand the context. And, and I want to say to you today, 1 Chronicles, which 1 and 2 Chronicles were originally one scroll, one big long scroll that we've split down the middle because splitting it into two parts makes it more manageable apparently. And most of us don't get past the first nine chapters. They should have broken it up even more. Um, so, but... Uh, Context is key. We read Chronicles and, and we're like, what? Why? Why this big long list of names? But I want you to know today that Chronicles is a story. And every aspect of it from the very beginning, God created Adam and Adam had Seth and Seth and so on. Every aspect of this is a story that is carrying a message that means something huge and important to the people that heard it. And the reason we don't get excited about it is because we miss the context. So, really quickly, a little bit of context, okay? Uh, Context is this. The people of Israel, living in Israel, divided into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel in the north, eventually got carried off into captivity. You remember this bit? They got carried off by the Babylonians and then by the Assyrians or the other way around. Dan, not sure. Yeah, other way around. Dan's nodding. Great. There we go. Whew. Um, and, and, and they got carried off into captivity and they were in captivity for 70 years. 70 years. That's like a whole lifetime. They're in captivity. Some of them were born there and never knew their homeland. Some of them would never see their homeland ever again. That's a whole lifetime. They're in captivity. And while they're there, uh, the empire, Babylonian, is that the second one? Babylonians, great. The Babylonian empire, the second one. um, It's funny how you know things until you get up here and then you don't, (laughs) honestly. So, yeah. The Babylonian Empire gets conquered by the Persian Empire. And so then the Persian Empire is now con- has conquered the people that conquered you or the Israelites and they're in under the Persian Empire. And after they've been there for 70 years, suddenly the king at the time, he says, go home. Go home. Go back to Israel. Build your temple. And they're like, some of them are like, well, this is home. This is where I was born. This is, this is what I've known all my life. Others of them are like, is this, a, is this a joke? Like, if I step foot outside, am I going to be killed? Like, imagine all the things that are going through their head. Go home. And so they, they are going to have all these questions, right? After 70 years, we're just being sent home. What was that about? What was that about? Who's in charge here? The king of Persia or God? Like, is God even with us anymore? Are we even God's people? Like, half of us were born here. Like, who are we? Whose are we? What are we? Imagine all these questions that they've got. And, and so this is the context into which one, chronicle, one and two chronicles 
it is written. Um, it was written around about that time, so kind of just after the end of the exile uh, and the return to Israel. Around about that time, scholars debate when it was written, and tradition says that Ezra wrote it. So you remember the, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and all of that story? Ezra was the scribe, the priest that went back and rebuilt the temple. Uh, tradition says that Ezra wrote it. We don't know. I like that. Let's go with that. All right. So, so, so around about that time, possibly by that guy who was leading the people at the time, he writes this, this story, this one and two chronicles. Um, and um, here's the thing that you're going to find hard to believe, right? When the people first heard this, when Ezra, whoever it was, stood up and said, I've got a story to tell you. And they're all sat there and they're like, right, come on then, Ezra. And they're expecting it to go a bit like this. Once upon a time. But instead, Ezra starts with Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan. But you're like, what kind of story is this? That is not the response that they had. Because they started hearing this big, long list of names. And suddenly, they started to smile or cry or well up with joy. Because this, even though we don't see it, and hopefully I'm going to unpack a little bit of it in a moment, this was like good news to them. It was good news to them. And it brought them incredible joy. So why? Why was this good news? Um, If you scan your eyes down chapter 1, Let's start there. Scan your eyes down chapter one. You'll see a big, long list of names. You've got Adam down to Noah. And then what do we know about the time of Noah? The world had gone to pot and everything was terrible, right? It was a terrible, terrible place. And so then the flood comes and then we get the three sons of Noah. Um, And then if you look uh, kind of from the Shemites down in verse 17, you eventually can track that down through to Abraham. And we know that story. We know that line, right? That's the story of the people of God. But if you go back up, to verse 8, you get the sons of Ham. And under there, you get, you get these people, Egypt, Canaan. You get all the other nations of the world. All the other nations of the world start getting listed. And so chapter 1 is an incredible answer to prayer. If you're one of these Israelites, and you're like, God, what is going on? Like, who's in charge here? You or the king? Or are you even real? Are you even with us? What, what is going on? And, and, and Ezra starts reading out this story. And suddenly what you see is that the whole first chapter lists all the nations in all the world that were created. And what that says is this. Every human being on the face of planet Earth was created by him and is in his will and is part of his plan. Who's in charge? He is. He is. Even the people that are holding you captive right now, he made them. They're his. Um, if you look at the promise that God gave to Abraham, Genesis 22, verse 18, you'll see there that God says to Abraham that through you, all nations will be blessed. Hey, these, these people, the, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Persians, the, They're part of the all nations that will be blessed through you, that God had a heart for them, that God wanted them to know him as well. He is over it all. If you get to the end of the Bible, see, Abraham is the start of the promise, right? You get right to the end of the Bible and you get to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And there we read that there are people from every nation, tribe and tongue worshipping the Lamb. 
Because all nations were going to be caught up in this. Because every human being on the face of the earth was made by him in his image. And he is king of them all. All of them. Romans 13 verse 1 tells us that all authorities, all governors, all powers have been put in place by him. There is no authority that exists outside of his will because he is over it. Man, that, that is like such a minefield to wrap my head around sometimes when I look at the people that are in power around the world. Isn't that crazy? But what the Bible tells us is that God is over it all. He's over it all. Um, if you turn to the end of the scroll, to the end of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. Verse 21 says this. Uh, sorry, verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is the king that let them go home. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, um, In order to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of the king of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what the king said. And he he goes on to say about how they can go back and build the temple. Who moved the heart of the king? God did. Who's over it all? God is. So suddenly when you've got these questions like, God, is, the, is this for real? Are we actually going home? Like, is this a trap? Is this a trick? Like, have you abandoned us? Is this for this king's glory? Where are you? Who's in charge here? Ezra starts off and he says, hey, God is over all of it. All of it. Isn't that good news? So then he goes on. And after we've done the, the introduction to all the nations, okay, all the peoples of the earth, Ezra zooms in and we get chapters 2 all the way to chapter 1 verse 9. And in those chapters, Ezra zooms in on one group of people. We know them as the Israelites, okay, the children of Jacob. Okay, he zooms in on these people and he follows their genealogy in more detail. And he goes all the way from the beginning, all the way from Adam down uh, to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob. And then he zooms in on the 12 sons of Jacob and all of their descendants. And he follows it all the way down. You can track the descendants of each son all the way down to the time of the exile, to the time of the exile. He follows it all the way down. Down, And if you look in chapter 9, verse 1, it kind of concludes by saying, All Israel listed in the genealogies, uh, recorded in the book of the kings of uh, Israel and Judah, um, they were taken captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Is God even with us anymore? Is he with us anymore? It's probably one of the questions that they had. And maybe that's a question that you have from time to time. Where is he? What is going on? And, and you know what? What I love about these chapters, as they go from, from Jacob all the way down to the time of the exile, and they end with this line that they went into captivity because of their unfaithfulness. What we discover is that God is still faithful. God is still faithful. You see, why were they in captivity? Because of their unfaithfulness. And what had God promised before? Through Abraham, through Moses, what had he promised? He had said, hey, if you obey me and you follow my ways, then it will go well with you. 
And I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to the people around you. But if you don't obey me, if you don't trust me, if you follow other gods and you turn away, then I will allow these other nations to come in and to carry you off into captivity because you have been unfaithful to me in this covenant. What happened? In came the other nations and off they were carried. What is that a sign of? It's a sign of the faithfulness of God. You might find that a bit weird, but it is. Because God is faithful to who he is. God is faithful to the words that he speaks. So when he says, this will happen if you do this, and this will happen if you do this, and then they take option B, what he said about option B happens. And so tracking this story all the way down from where the promise was spoken to the moment they went into exile and ending it with this line that says, they went in because of their unfaithfulness. The people are like, oh, right. God is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his word. Um, the promise that God gave them was this, right? Do you remember he said, hey, if you follow me, if you obey me, if you trust in me, I will take you to a land of your own, a land flowing with milk and honey, and I will settle you there, and I will be there in your midst among you. And what does he do? He takes them to that land. Now, the promises of God, as you track them through the Bible, they're all connected. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, God spoke over humanity when he first made them. And what did he say to them there? He said, go forth and multiply, subdue the earth, rule over it. What that didn't mean was oppress it. What that meant was have dominion over it and bring about life. Rule over it in my image. And the way that I have brought you about into life, bring life into this world. And as you start tracking the story through, what you discover is the people of God were supposed to bear the image of God. They were supposed to look like him. And so when he put them in the land, the land that they were in should have been a land that produced blessing upon blessing upon blessing, life upon life upon life. But that isn't what happened. That isn't what happened. Turn to the end of the scroll again, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. You might want to keep a thumb in there because we're going to jump backwards and forwards. Um, chapter 36, verse 20 and 21. They say this, he carried into exile... Uh, to Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of the desolation it rested until the 70 years were complete in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. You see, you see God's promise wasn't just about people. It was also about land. And the two things were supposed to go together. The land would look after the people if the people looked after the land and looked after one another. But the people didn't look after one another and they didn't look after the land and they abused one another and they put people in slavery and they killed people and they disobeyed God and they followed other gods and made child sacrifices and they spilled innocent blood upon the land. And God was like, well, the land was part of my promise as well and you have not looked after it. So I'm removing you so that I can restore the thing that I want to bless you with so that you can be in it again. You see, he had to remove them 
uh, and be faithful to his promise and faithful to what he did and restore the land and remove the people that were abusing it out of it. Do you see that? God is faithful. And this is what these list of names tell us, that God is faithful, that his promise still stands, that the reason he brought us out of the land was to give the land rest so that ultimately his promise could be fulfilled and his people could live in it. Because God is faithful and his promise still stands and he is with us. Isn't that amazing? You track those names through and that's what it starts telling you the story of. And then we get into 1 Chronicles chapter 9. And um, in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, it kicks off by telling us this. It tells us that the first to resettle in their own properties in the towns were some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. Who were the first people to go back? The priests, the Levites, and the temple servants, the people responsible for worship, the people responsible for the presence of God, the people responsible for the temple. They were the people that went back first. By writing this, what is Ezra telling the people? He's saying, guys, the umbilical cord was not cut by the exile. God is still with us. His presence is still among us. Because the first people to go back are the ones who will restore the temple. Because we can't all go back until the temple is rebuilt, the place that he will dwell among us. And so these people go back because God longs for his presence to be among them. Because they're the people that will guard the place of his presence. Because they're the people that will live there and serve there and work there and enable people to encounter the presence of God. So, hey, who's in charge here? He is. He is. Is he still faithful? Yes, he is. Is he still with us? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And then... After they went back, we then go on and we read in verse 3 that those from Judah, from Benjamin, from Ephrath, from Manasseh, who lived in Jerusalem were, and then it goes on to tell us about a whole load of other people, part of the Israelites, who returned and lived in Jerusalem. This, this is amazing, right? Turn to the end of the scroll again, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Look at verse 14. It tells us this. Furthermore, so this is, this is just before the exile happens, okay? Right at the end of their time before they got carried off by the Assyrians. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people, who became, uh, and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had constructed in Jerusalem. So just before the time of exile, the priests, the Levites, the people responsible for worship and all the people had started to do terrible things, terrible things. In fact, they'd started to put other idols and other statues and other gods in the house of God, in the temple of God, where his presence dwelt. They really screwed it up, right? Jump down. To verse 19, where it says this, talking about the people that came in and invaded Jerusalem, it says, they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Oh, man. They set fire to the temple. Now, if you are an Israelite and you read that, your heart breaks within you. 
but you miss something. Because fire in the Bible is not always the end. Fire in the Bible is symbolic of refining and renewing. Fire is symbolic of, of purifying. So they defiled the temple of God. And God brought in the outsiders to do what his people should have done. And these people came in and they set fire to the temple. And they refined it. And they purified it. So that in 70 years time, God's people could come back and rebuild it. And it could be a place that was worthy of his name. And they do. They come back. The Levites come back. The people come back. And at the end of chapter 9, basically, here's what we have, right? This is what we have at the end of chapter 9. He's gone through all these lists of people from creation all the way down through the Israelites, including all the nations of the world, down to the exile when the people get carried off. And then in chapter 9, he carries on after the exile. Here are the people that have come back. Here are the people that have come back. And what we see is that suddenly we have the people of God in the land, with the temple. We've got a faithful God who is overall and a people who are his and the promise being fulfilled because God is faithful. Isn't that amazing? That, that, that is like cause for celebration. If you're an Israelite, you're like, woohoo! Come on! Good news! Good news! God is still faithful. God is in control. We are still his people. His promise still stands and his presence is still among us. That's what that list of names tells you. And we don't see it because we don't know the context, but it is amazing. It is amazing. And it was amazing to them. So what happens in the rest of Chronicles? Really briefly, if you look at the end of chapter 9, you'll see it, it talks about the genealogy of Saul. Okay, And we get the Saul, who's the first king of Israel. And then it moves into the story of David. And then it carries on down the line of the kings all the way down, right the way up to the point of exile. So we get then this focusing in on the story of the kings. Why? Why does he do that? Well, he does that uh, because the line of the kings is part of the promise of God. Because God also promised that there would be one who would sit on David's throne and reign forever. And so with each king that comes, the Israelites are like, is this the guy? Is this the king? Is this the... And each time it's, it's like, it starts off and you're like, David, yeah! <laughs> Crash and burn. Solomon, yeah! Oh! <laughs> Even more dramatic crash and burn. And then the others, you kind of get like a yip, yip. It just kind of goes like that, right? <laughs> that kind of what happens. And you're like, ah, oh! there's one or two good ones in there. There are, but most of them terrible. And you're like, this is not the guy. This is not the guy. This is not the guy. And you get right to the end uh, of the scroll of Chronicles. So turn back to, uh, to Chronicles chapter 36. Right to the end. And in the tragic end, of, which ends in exile. And if you, if you look at verses 9 and 10, we meet a king called Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin. And um, this king was 18 years old when he came, became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for a whopping three months and ten days. Successful reign. And uh, then he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
And in the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, together with the articles uh, of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiachin's uncle Zedekiah king over Judah and in Jerusalem. Here's the thing. This king, this king doesn't get killed by the Babylonians, doesn't get killed by another king. You don't hear about his death there. We just hear that he gets carried off with some of the people into captivity. And, and the story ends there, basically. This king is taken off into captivity, and that's, that's the end of it. There's a little bit more in the, in the book of Kings that you can read about it. Um, but essentially, it gets to this point where it's like, what happens to the line of the kings of David? What happened to them? Are they wiped out forever? Will God fulfill his promise? We'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want to pause there for a moment. Because Ezra tells this story, and, and this story, if in the Hebrew Bible, this story, Chronicles, actually comes right at the end of the Hebrew Bible. It's in a different place to where it is in our Bible. It ends with this story. And it's almost like their scriptures wrap up with this story of their complete unfaithfulness, but God's faithfulness through it again and again and again. And, and he's telling this story at the time that they're coming back in uh, to the land, having been in exile. And he's saying, guys, this was our story. This was our story, a story of unfaithfulness again and again and again, but a story of a God who is faithful. And it's like he puts it in front of them and he says, now that you're back in the land, what story will you live now? What story will you live now? Will you be different? Will you live differently? Will you trust God this time? Will you be obedient to him this time? What story will you live now? I wonder what stories you tell. I wonder what stories we tell as a community. We all tell stories. Um, And I was praying about this and actually changed just this morning how I wanted to end this because I felt the Lord speaking to me a little bit. Um, and I felt like the Lord told me this morning that some of us have been in captivity. Some of us have been in captivity and we've started to believe and be influenced by the stories of our captors. We've started to believe the stories that the world is telling us, not the story that the Lord is telling us. We've started to believe the narratives around us. Some of those narratives, I haven't got time to list them all. You will know, probably even now, alarm bells are ringing in some of your heads and hearts. You know what those stories are, right? But I was praying this morning and thinking about this, and, and I just felt the Lord say, like, some of those stories that some of us in this place have believed are this. You are not loved, and you are not lovable. Some of you have believed that story. You are not worthy. Some of you have believed that story. Maybe that story got told to you as you were growing up through school. By your teachers, by your classmates. Maybe you bought that story. You are not worthy. You are not good enough. Some of you have bought that story that says, it's a complete and utter accident that we're here. And you have no purpose, no reason for being. 
And you know that story is your story if you are constantly trying to find purpose and reason for being. If that's what you're doing, you've bought that story. Some of us have been telling stories and not realized that we've been telling stories. We've been a bit like how Chronicle starts with a genealogy and we all go, that's not a story. <laughs> that's not a story that I want to read, you know? Some of us have been telling stories and living stories and we didn't even realize that the thing we were telling and living was a story that has power to shape us. And we've been being shaped by it. Some of those stories are things like patterns in our lives, habits, drug addiction, sex, pornography addiction, Instagram. He's on social media. Some of us. Instagram. Hear me, I'm not saying Instagram is bad. But sometimes the way that we engage with it is sex is not bad. It is a thing that God gave and it is a joy and it is something that he gave to bless people. But sometimes the way we engage with it is not healthy. Instagram becomes that thing where you scroll through and you, you're just, oh, I'm just scrolling. But what you don't realize is every time you scroll, you're reading a story that's speaking into your life. And for many of us, as we read through those stories and we see the pictures of everybody else's perfect life, the story that we buy is that our life could be and should be so much better than it is. And we enter escapism. And we believe a story of escapism that says, my only hope is this. If I could do this, if I could get that, if I could be here, that's the story that we buy. Other stories, um, <clears throat> other stories are admiration of other people. Sometimes we, we admire other people, and that's a good thing, right? People are good. Let's give them praise and honor them where they, they, they're due it. But when we admire them too much, we start to lift them up. And in doing so, we put ourselves down. And we buy the story that we're not as good as them. We never will be. So what's the point? We buy that false story. Some of you, oh man, this one. Some of you are telling old stories you're telling old stories of what that person did to you or that person said to you months ago. Some of you, years ago. You're still telling that story now. That person said this to me. That person did this to me. And it happened months ago or years ago and now you're still telling it. Do you know what? That story is not a story about that person anymore. That story is actually now a story about you and the slavery and the captive, uh, capt uh, captivity that you are now living in. That's not a story about what they did. It ceased being a story about that months ago. It's now a story that you keep telling and you keep living under and you keep holding yourself captive under. It's a story about your captivity, not about their actions. Let me tell you this. All these stories are sin. And sinful stories. What do I mean by that? Here's the thing. Sin, hatar in the Hebrew, it means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. 
All of these stories that we tell ourselves and that other people tell us and that the world tells us, all of these stories miss the mark of telling you who you really are in the eyes of God. They are sin. And sin leads to death. And these stories choke us and kill us. And they stop us being fully alive human beings. But I've got some good news for you. You see, like in the 70th year of being in exile, there's a new king on the throne. And God has moved the heart of this new king. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 3. Guess what you find in Luke chapter 3? A story, a genealogy, a list of names. And that name is telling us the story of someone named Jesus. And you know that list of names that starts with Jesus? If you flick right towards the end of chapter 3, it goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. It follows the same line as Chronicles. It picks up where Chronicles left off, and it says, the king didn't die out. The line kept going, and the promised king that would sit on the throne, he has come. He has come. And that king, who is on the throne now, is telling you, go home. Go home. Run back into your father's arms. Run back into your father's arms. That king has dealt with all of the stuff. He has purified the temple. He has purified the land. And he has called you back into the promise so that you can be the people of God, living in the promise of God, in the, with, the, with the presence of God in the midst of your life. That is what he has said. And that is what he has done. And here's the thing. You see, all we need to do is put our faith in Jesus. And the Bible says that when we put our faith in him, he has done it all. And we are grafted into that story. And the story that we just read, all that list of names that means nothing to us because it happened thousands of years ago and is out of our context, it becomes our story. It becomes our context. And the promise of God that was given back then is the promise of God for us now that he wants to be our God and wants to make us his people. And he wants to bring blessing upon your life and freedom and hope and forgiveness and love and joy for you. And so today, today, I want to tell you to go home. Go home. Some of you have been, by Mark, <laughs> he's off. Some of you have been living in captivity and you've been telling these stories. That story is over. Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished it is finished and so i want to tell you a story jesus gathered with his disciples around a table and on the night that he was betrayed 
He took bread and he broke it. And he said, take this and eat. This is my body that is broken for you. All that brokenness that you've been carrying is now caught up in this. He is broken so that we can be healed. By his stripes, we are healed. And then after supper, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, take this and drink. This wine is my blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you. And he gave his life for us that we might have his life. His blood was spilled that we might leave behind the things that are spilling our blood, that are taking our life, and we get to have his life. We get to join ourselves to him. So we're going to worship, and we're going to share communion together. There's a table over there. There's two tables here. Um, and there'll be some people there that will serve you communion. Um, and when you go... They're going to take the bread and they're going to break it and they're going to give it to you. And they're going to say, this is his body broken for you. And they're going to give you the cup and say, this is his blood shed for you. And his story can become your story. His story can become your story. And I want to encourage you today to step into that. This ritual act that we do is precisely that. It's not magical. It's a ritual act. But it is a way of acting out and saying, Jesus, I am partaking in your story and I am making it my story by stepping into it, by receiving what you have done. And over this side here, uh, just past this table, I'm just going to ask a few of the ministry team just to gather over there. And, and if you have been living under another story, Nath, why don't you come? If you've been living under another story, um, and you've been listening to the things that other people have been saying. And you know that you need that story to break. Then there's going to be a few people there. You don't have to tell them anything. You can tell them what you want. You don't have to. They would love to just stand with you and just speak a new story over you. To speak a new story over you. One of a king who says, come home. Come home. And they would love to just pray that with you. Is that okay? Why don't we stand together?